This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin, joined as always by my fellow enjoyer of a pretty cover from time to time, Sharmila Ganesan. Almost always. Thank you. Well, there it is. There it is. We've laid it out right at the start of the we're show. We're book um, cover judges. <laughs> yes, I was going to say we're, we're superficial book lovers, but that's, you know, really maybe for uh, a later part of the conversation. But for today's episode of By the Book, we are in fact talking about when we do judge a book by its cover or in other words, the pivotal role really that book covers play in marketing, in getting books off the book from the bookstores onto people's bookshelves at home. So I think that as much as we all want to pretend that the image on the book cover doesn't affect whether we want to read a book or not, it may not once you've already, um, I don't know, hooked onto an author or a particular genre. But otherwise, I actually think book covers are kind of a pretty great way to discover new books, um, whether in bookstores, whether in libraries. All the way back to when I was a child, my first experience with an Enid Blyton book, which, as we've said so many times, went on to be so formative to my childhood years, was because of the cover. Because the covers were so beautiful. It was those um, classic hardcover Enid Blytons. Um, and I still remember it was one of the circus books. And that was what got me on to reading her. So um, I think book covers are hugely important, actually. Hugely exploited as well, but important. It's going to be an interesting discussion, I think, because it, it comes down to, on the one hand, the romance and beauty of book covers, the illustrations, the skill involved in boiling an entire book down to its theme. And then from that theme to possibly a single image, the choice of font and how much that influences uh, the ways that we want to buy the book or are keen on reading the book. There's a lot of beauty in that. And there's a reason why book covers have gone on to, in some cases, inspire movie posters, why they have become posters on art prints themselves, why first editions are so prized. Anyway, th th there's a lot of that and there's a lot of the romance of book loving packed into that. On the flip side, though, there's also the sheer marketing dross of how, so peach, is that the colour we like? <laughs> is that what works? Do we prefer buying books when they're when the font is baby blue on a on a black cover. Actually, that sounds horrific, but you know. That sounds like a murder mystery. But a bad one. Yes. Uh, mm. Or, oh, women will respond to a pink cover with a handbag and a pair of high heels and lipstick. Um, which, you know, ironically, probably is the case sometimes, but I don't think should be... Um, the way so many Jane Austen books, do you remember that phase when they were specifically marketed as if they were chiclet? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are there are so many um, negatives, I think, to the whole book cover thing. Um, but I think on the on the other hand, some of them end up being sort of iconic artwork, iconic art representations of what a book is. So. Is it time for us to talk favourites? Okay, before that, I, I wanted to know whether you are somebody who buys more than one version of a book for the sake of the cover. Because I know people exist who do that. I personally am not. I, I do ultimately still buy books for, for what's between the covers mostly. But when they wear out, there are times when I go back to the bookshop and think, okay, now I'm going to pick up this new or a different edition and enjoy that instead. 
I'm not. Largely, no. I paused because I think I might have done it for um, books like Narnia when they had a special edition of um, the one with Aslan on the cover, for instance, and it was this beautiful golden cover. Um, But largely, no. And I think it's partly because it feels like I'm almost wasting a book by Mm. owning more than one um, with different covers. Let me follow that up then. How about when it is a part of a series, does it matter to you that your book Ah. covers might be from different illustrators? You know, I thought it mattered to me quite a bit and it used to, um, like when I was buying the Harry Potter books or Game of Thrones. Um, But recently, I've been um, amassing my or reamassing my collection of the Sandman graphic novels. And um, I don't know, it didn't bother me so much suddenly. Um, I just wanted to have all of the books because I think um, the first few that I had are no longer available. So I've had to contend with just having the covers be by a different publisher or a different artist. Maybe I'm outgrowing it, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I want to make it clear that I'm not asking out of judgment. I, I don't care, but I'm increasingly, especially when it comes to uh, books, actually, not a very visual person. Perhaps it's it's why I read. <laughs> and so because of that, the, the completest nature of it doesn't bother me so much. But I know people in my actual personal life for whom this really matters. And I understand why. I also understand the appeal of pretty bookshelves. So there is all of that packed into it. And I think it's perfectly valid. Oh, I... I don't judge people who like it. Um, I also think that particularly when people have gone to great effort to make the covers look off a piece, um, you know, sometimes when the spines line up and make an image once you arrange them on your bookshelf, Mm. um, I think, look, there's been effort put into it. Is it marketing? Is it a bit of a cash grab? Yes. But on the other hand, it's also meant to make you feel happy with your book collection. I don't think there's any harm in it as long as you don't become too precious about the whole thing. So let's talk then about some of our favourites and uh, basically why they work the way they work. Okay, I think I'm going to start with possibly the most visually recognisable and distinct book covers uh, across the world, I want to say. Um, and, and because certainly for me, I always think of the cover, um, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> I tried. Um, just because the book cover is essentially such a big part of the imagery in the book itself, since it is an illustrated book, it's by the author himself. Uh, and therefore, it is really off a piece. It's also a cover that's very rarely changed. When it does, they still play around with the same elements and the same artwork. Um, and so I think it's it's gone on to become so iconic and so associated with the story of The Little Prince. I love that you mentioned that because when you started off and said, okay, I'm going to talk about one of the most famous book covers, I thought you were going to say Jaws. because um, <laughs> Very different, but yes, true. Because Jaws, the book cover is so iconic, um, which was designed, by the way, by uh, Paul Bacon. um, And that Peter Benchley novel, when you think about the cover of that shark heading upwards towards a swimmer, it's such a glorious use of graphics. It's just really lovely. And... And it really perfectly encapsulates what the book is about. Now, I know you could argue that Jaws isn't really about a shark. Instead, it's about, for example, infidelity. But <laughs> I, I think ultimately there's no getting around the really big shark in, at the heart of the book, Bruce. And so, yeah, I, 
I love that design. Uh, Paul Bacon actually also did a number of other really, really famous ones, which we can talk about later. But the Jaws design also ended up inspiring Chip Kidd, who did the Jurassic Park cover, yes. which is the other one. And and both of these, um, both of these, of course, went on to barnstorming movie adaptations, which in turn borrowed the imagery. So Jurassic Park. In fact, now is the, the the book cover image is literally associated with the movie poster, merchandising, mm. t-shirts, t-shirts, yeah. the 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 outline of the skeleton of the T Rex, right? Um, I think anyone would look at it and recognize it, and it's it's really sort of cool because sure, Michael Crichton is a hugely popular author and a best selling one at that, but it's rare that a book actually makes that kind of worldwide pop culture impact. So I always thought it was really quite cool. I went to the book after I watched the movie um, and I was really quite pleased to realise how the movie had actually taken its inspiration from the book cover, not just the story. So both of the ones or most of the ones that we've been talking about have been thus far quite graphic in nature. Um, The Little Prince features The Little Prince on the cover, Jurassic Park as a dinosaur. Um, Jaws as a shark. Jaws as a shark. How can I forget? (laughs) I wanted to ask whether that's your preference. No, actually. My favourites are probably um, the ones, particularly when you're talking about more conceptual novels or novels that do these like big picture stories um, or big ideas. And the cover is kind of inspired by it, but not necessarily. Um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World has some great cover art. Uh, the original is kind of classic sci-fi, but the, the, the latter interpretations of the themes are great. 1984 is another one that um, constantly... Which one? Ooh, the one with the eye is, of course, iconic. Um, I love the penguin cover. I've talked about <laughs> this before, but I think the penguin great. one is really smart. Yeah, um, and but it just offers so many... Um, I think it gives you so much room to interpret it however you like. Um, I love the Godfather cover because the whole um, puppeteer uh, is not something you'd naturally assume. And unless you've read the book and you understand what the reference is, when you first look at the cover, you may not necessarily know what it's referring to. Uh, But then it's actually really cool. It also just looks great as well. S. Neil Fujita. I'm trying my best to credit the I'm glad you are because, because I realised that I'm doing a really bad job. Like I, re- I no, know no. the covers, but I don't know who the artists are. And also because actually the thing is that there are so many editions and therefore so many different artists. And depending on who you're talking about, it's also going to be tricky. But uh, similar to producers and writers on film, I think that the illustrators and, and book, cover pe- uh, book cover designers don't always get their due. So anyways, uh, the puppeteer cover art for The Godfather is S. Neil Fujita. And it is great. Um, a similar, um, a similar look, and in fact, in the similar, and in fact, in the on the same side of the book is uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which was also designed by Neil Fujita and features a sort of needle with a drop of blood. Oh, and I love that. Yeah, it and, and it's also similar in that. It's arresting, so you stop and look at it. But if you haven't read the book and you don't know what In Cold Blood is about, you may not necessarily pay any attention to it. And the detail that I really enjoy is that the original drop of blood was supposed to be a brighter red and they darkened, oh, and Truman Capote requested that it was darkened uh, to indicate the amount of time that had elapsed since the murder. Now that you've mentioned it, I can so see the parallels between the two designs because they both right. have that minimalist, um, one large image, um, a sort of a, a dark 
undertone to what we're seeing. Um, but yeah, but before that, I don't think I would have made the connection between those two covers. And again, I think, um, quite sadly, that has to do with the fact that largely book cover designers don't get the kind of credit that they deserve. So we're talking today about book covers um, and how they basically the job, the heavy lifting that they do sometimes in getting books bought and read. Do you have a favourite book cover that you'd like to share? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and uh, of course write to us as well at buythebook at bfm.my. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. Today, celebrating our love of a good book cover and uh, bringing up some favourites as well as some of the artists. So, Sharmila, one thing that uh, I realised we forgot to bring up in the setup is the role that social media plays in all of this. We've, we talked ah, about it yes. a fair amount on our show. But I think that book talk and, um, you know, Instagram, what is it called? Bookstagram. Bookstagram. So, um, so bookstagram, book talk, the fact that people often take photos and videos of their book hall, their bookshelves, and the fact that we are living in an age of very, very quickly transitioning visual trends also means that I wonder whether it's harder now to come up with an abiding book cover or one that you really feel convinced is going to sell compared to the past. Yes, because are you more driven by what looks great on camera? What works well to uh, be in a TikTok video? Um, I will confess to actually being quite enamoured of um, these trends where people do, and, and I've I've done a couple of them actually. With like, you're a staunch defender of Bookstagram. I know I am, aren't I? I didn't think I was, but I think it's because I get so much joy out of them. Um, I I remember doing one of those like arrange your book covers in the colour of a rainbow and then like do the quick transitions or take a book cover that makes you happy, take a book cover that makes you sad, take a book cover with a person in it. And I mean, they're all kind of, they're fun. They may sound superficial as well. I would like to think people are also reading those books and not just using them as props. Uh, But I I get what you're saying. I wonder whether there's also um, the idea of what works as a book cover, whether that's changed now because of the function. It's no longer even just to be looked at at a shelf and kind of taken in at your own time, but it has to like make an impact within a glance. So the perhaps most pressing way in which you see that actually is in something like The Handmaid's Tale, where it was always relevant. And then a few years ago with the, um, well, with with Donald Trump, frankly, but also with the release of the television show, it regained a, a new kind of pop culture shelf life. And if you look at the ways in which the book covers have evolved, so the um, original American edition, the cover design was by Fred Marcel. I'm assuming Marcelino or Marcellino. Um, and it d- absolutely has the famous red cloak. Um, it has the white hood. But it doesn't, it's not as stark as the one that we've seen more recently mm. from Noma Bar, which is a plain black cover and then The Handmaid. And it's interesting to see that transition, right? Because it also speaks to the actual handmaiden's iconography elsewhere. 
which um, wasn't the case for a while, even after the book came out. Yeah. Uh, the TV show, the protests, the um, women showing up at the Supreme Court in the costume, all of that, I think, added to making that look very iconic in a way that now you'd recognise it the same way you'd recognise the T-Rex skeleton, uh, which I don't think was the case even back when... Um, the the actual when when the actual book came out and it became such a hit, I don't think the iconography was as big a deal. Um, it's similar, I think, actually to. Well, no, I'm now wondering because one of my favorite book covers is actually uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Anthony yes. Burgess. And mm-hmm. see, now you've shamed me. I'm going to look no, up the no, designer. I have not shamed no, you. <laughs> no, no, but I think. I think it's important. So the cover is by David Pelham. This is the 1972 design by Penguin. Um, And I think that's the one that's gone on to kind of define the novel. Um, And it's weird how it kind of is in conversation with the movie imagery of Clockwork Orange, right? And I'm not sure whether it was meant to be, you know, whether the movie was taking inspiration from the cover or vice versa. Um, But I feel like now I can't separate the two. When I look at it, I see Malcolm McDowell. So I... This leads me to a key point, a truly key point. I like to think that we are an inclusive show and that we don't generally engage in book snobbery. I like to think that. Yes. In other words, if you, for whatever reason, choose to read a book after the movies come out, and sometimes that's just because it's the way the book was introduced to you in the first place, then by all means. Um, But I do don't agree. I will never agree with having the book cover reference the film. Uh, not reference, sorry. Be a picture or an image oh, from the film. Oh gosh, yes, I agree. Um, no, so this this David Pelham yeah. one, great. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, particularly because after a while, that's the way you see it anyway, and that's fine. Um, but when Twilight has Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart's <laughs> face on it, rather than an apple, for example, it's just not the same. Especially because whatever you think of Twilight or not, the Twilight covers are actually pretty great. They're like really well designed, um, particularly the first one with the hand clutching the apple. Um, I mean, as they go on, they become a little bit more sort of problematic perhaps, but um, but I think it's a great design. In fact, and that design hasn't changed for um, the that version of the book, except for the ones with the movie posters on them. Um, and yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of having um, stills or images from yeah. movies put onto book covers. I feel like it's too much of a merchandising attempt. I don't even like it, to be honest, when they say now made into a major motion picture. <laughs> I, I resent it. So Even in I, tiny letters? I, it can be just, in the back as a footnote. <laughs> it, it's almost like putting the Academy little, you know, oh, laurel on the thing. Yes. Yeah. Academy okay. Award winning f- movie on a book. So, like I said, I so don't have that. we're snobs that. sometimes. But not this all one's the time. bad. Yeah. This one's bad. I think it's justifiable. Um so the other thing um is I wanted to just briefly touch on the Great Gatsby because there is a very famous cover by Francis Kugat, I think, um, is how you pronounce his surname. Who would have thought all these designers had such complicated names? Yeah, um, mostly because I'm I'm not certain of uh, their nationality. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's the very famous cover. It's a floating face on a blue backdrop uh, with a city or what looks like a city, um, a nightscape at the bottom. And it's interesting because that's sometimes, right, I get that that's a beautiful cover. I really think it is. 
But that's not my great Gatsby. And for that reason, I don't appreciate it as much as I should. Is yours, or rather for me, the one I always think of is the golden black art deco one that mine Penguin put Penguin. out? Mine is Penguin. Mine is Penguin as well, but it's the specialty edition, the expensive one. Mine is, back when I bought it, 690 penguins. So it's um, what I assume is the uh, vintage version of stock photos in the form of paintings. So that's, that's the cover I know. The one you're talking about, frankly, I'm not a fan of it. Um, it just looks sort of weirdly pulp. I get that it's beautiful though. Ah, I suppose so. And, and maybe for me, it's that it doesn't seem to really refer to anything I recognise from the book. Mm. But but I get why it's iconic and I get why that one more than a lot of others have stuck around. The same way um, Catcher in the Rye, that yeah. the sort of orange swirls, that's something that you know people still use as book covers. Ha- um, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I've seen many versions, but the, the sort of fairly simplistic and to be fair, not super creative one of a mockingbird perched on a tree um, is really the one that gets shared all the time online. Shirley Smith uh, was To Kill a Mockingbird and Catcher in the Rye was E. Michael Mitchell, um, which features very little <laughs> and it was apparently J.D. Salinger's preferred cover. So the the other one, and this is something that I think is interesting because it's a book that I don't particularly love, but I really love the cover. It's um, Anne Rand. I think oh, it's a great cover. It's Atlas a great Shrugged cover. Yes. It's a really great cover, um, even though I I have no real fondness for the book. And that was designed by uh, Nick Gitano. Um, no, and, and I think I just wanted to quickly plump for probably one of my favourite book covers of all time. Pride and Prejudice, which the classic one with the peacock and the feathers kind of spilling all over the cover. And you see it in different coloured versions, sometimes blue, sometimes gold and black uh, by yeah. Hugh Thompson. Um, I love it. I actually have a handbag um, that kind of references that cover. Um, I think it's one... just a cover. Your, your handbag is literally, <laughs> know, it's the, literally cover the cover on a bag. References. Um, it's, <laughs> I was trying to sound less like a fangirl. Um, but that cover, I think, is one of those that no matter when you look at it, it's beautiful. So uh, last two shouts, mostly because, my goodness, we ran out of time. Um, we didn't even talk about handwritten covers um, that I believe we see with Jonathan Safran Foer, yes. for example, yeah. which John Gray did. So th- there are so many different types of covers. Maybe a second show. Maybe there will be time for a second show. But I wanted to mention two things. Firstly, um, you mentioned The Little Prince earlier. The Hobbit's cover was illustrated by J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Yes. And it's beautiful. Uh, it does a reason, I think, that it's made it into so many tattoos over the years. It's because it's really glorious. And then the other thing that I quickly wanted to mention is that it's quite fun, actually, when you can see when a book is so famous or a book series is so famous that you have different editions of covers around the world. And there is this great little blog that both um, Sharmila and I (laughs) fell into yesterday. Um, I found it, fervently shared it. And it's blog.flipsnack.com, Harry Potter book covers all around the world. I think if you search it, you'll find it. And it's really remarkable to see what an attractive cover for a book like Harry Potter looks like in, for example, um, the Czech Republic versus China versus Japan versus the United States. It's it's really fascinating. Even Harry looks totally different. It's fascinating and sometimes just like laugh out loud crazy. 
Because if we wanted to change careers, maybe we can. I know. <laughs> yes, I'm like maybe if I worked in Finland, I could illustrate book covers because they just seem to. I, I'm just maligning Finland for no reason. Uh, but You're I'm, not I'm maligning saying, Finland for no reason. Ron has eyeshadow. Oh right. Okay. So that was one of the weird ones. Then Japan predictably is beautiful. Uh, but yeah, I think the notion of what works as a book cover, what works as um, a children's story, uh, is so interesting to see how across cultures is so different. So we've been talking today about book covers and uh, some of the illustrators who've done really amazing work and who have led us to maybe pick up books that we wouldn't otherwise have done. Let us know, do you have a favourite book cover? Um, you can WhatsApp us 18 Tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. brings us to footnotes where um, after what for us anyway was a rather delightful little show uh, we have a, a firm smacking back down onto the ground with footnotes in which we're talking about the conversation and controversy that has been sparked off by frequent controversy sparker Joyce Carol Oates. Well, I suppose in some ways the link to our earlier conversation is that Joyce Carol Oates is essentially saying, don't judge the white male writer by his skin. So she had a more nuanced point to make and she kind she of did. illustrates that in the in the you know in later tweets but um the tweet that sort of went viral and has garnered a lot of criticism is essentially her saying um that that because publishing is now skewing a lot more towards representation and diversity and inclusion, that white male writers are finding it really difficult to get published, almost to the point uh, in, in, she actually references and says, I think she references an earlier tweet where she says censorship can happen in many forms. And I think so this has gotten people... Um, it's basically gotten a lot of backlash um, and, and saying, well, the industry still isn't really shutting out white male writers. So there are a few ways to unpack this tweet. Uh, I think it is most salient, perhaps, to start by saying that it's not like she spoke to young male writers. It opens with a friend who is a literary agent told me that he cannot even get editors to read first novels, etc., etc. So it's first, firstly, it's secondhand. Um, and I think... Her her take actually has more to do with the fact that doors should be open based on merit as mm. opposed to anything else. And that's a perfectly fair point to take. Um, although it ignores people who, for example, in the past have written under under Chinese nom de plumes um, in order to create an air of exoticism around their story. That gent in question was a white guy as well who perhaps found himself in this conundrum that Joyce Carol Oates' literary agent friend is describing. So I don't know. But that was the point that she was trying to make, that, that merit is most important. Why it is that she chose this particular example to go off, I think, is the main question. Because to me, there are it's a worthy argument. And there are a lot of ways that you could have made that if that were, in fact, the argument you were planning to make and not saying that the the publishing industry should be more welcoming towards white male authors when they are outsized probably the the largest collection of people who get published. So I think um, the bulk of the criticism being levelled at her was pointing out um, and I did find this a valid a valid point to make that perhaps it's not that they're not 
it's not that they're being denied opportunities, but perhaps there's just more competition. And perhaps mm. because historically we've had so much opportunity to read stories from white male writers, that it is just more interesting to publish stories from uh, other communities and other genders and basically people who are not that. Um, because when, when you talk about publishing, the interest, of course, is always in the next new thing and the next interesting, unusual story. Um, and if you've had centuries of just fairly similar stories being told from fairly similar points of view, perhaps that's just why suddenly it feels like it's competition when all it is is that there are more people in the game. So more people in the game and then I think the the tricky question there is actually how much do marginalised writers sell um, or how well do they market in reality? Because the the stories when they emerge are, are often very touted, very loud, and, and that has a lot to do with the media landscape in which we operate, where it is marginalised voices that we are expected and encouraged to champion. And, and that's a good thing. But it does mean that when a book is published from somebody who comes from a marginalised community, that tends to be the narrative, which in its own way is unfair, I would argue. You don't necessarily have to always just be... Um, defined in that sense. You can also just be a writer who wanted to tell the story. Not every story um, needs to be marketed in that in that lens. But when we say that it feels like there's more competition or it feels like things are going in a certain way, I guess it's worth looking, and I don't have um, the numbers, but it's worth looking beyond the immediate buzz and maybe even the awards and asking, well, who is selling though? Yeah. At the end of it all, who are still the big sellers keeping the dying publishing industry alive? So, um, to be fair, J uh, Joyce Carol Oates wasn't the only author to have said this recently. I quickly, I remembered someone else doing this, so I quickly just looked it up. James Patterson, in fact. <laughs> made of a piece, no? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he retracted it, though. Uh, but as a result, people have actually been studying the industry and there's plenty of data uh, to indicate. Like, for instance, if you look at an audit of uh, just Penguin Random House, 76% um, of their books released between 2019 and 2021 were white writers. 34% were men. Um, meanwhile, if you look at... Um, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, Doubleday, HarperCollins and Macmillan, 95% of those books were written by white people. Um, so it, it isn't really being borne out in the data. It seems to be just more one of those things that because you're hearing a lot of conversation about diversity, it's easy to kind of reflect that back on the industry without necessarily talking about, yeah, what gets published, what gets bought, who, who gets prime position in the bookstores. What I'll tell you is this. I didn't know before this that Joyce Carol Oates was um, a word that I can't say on air, a something poster on Twitter. Um, but but going through her tweets made me realise she actually really is. She this is. is not the first time that one of her tweets has hit a nerve in this very particular way. So um, my takeaway from this, aside from what we just talked about, is also maybe follow Joyce Carol Oates. Have a look. <laughs> because... Yeah, like there's 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 a lot going on there. It's quite interesting. All right, so we've been talking today about an assertion from longtime bestseller Joyce Carol Oates that essentially young white male authors aren't able to get their novels read, no matter how brilliant they are, because essentially there's there's a certain amount of gatekeeping going on in the publishing industry, which is a uh, 
which hasn't been received that well. Let us know what you think. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at bythebookatbfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.